If you have a Bible, pull it out. We're in James chapter 3. If, you've been, if you were coming to our church uh, before the Christmas season really kicked off, we were doing a study in the book of James, and we, we, we came to like a halftime at it. We pushed pause right at the beginning of chapter 3 so that we could celebrate Advent and, and really prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas, which, by the way, was amazing. Thank you all for celebrating. This is my first Sunday back in the new year, so... Happy New Year, everyone. I hope that you are having uh, a time just as it is, kind of because you turn the calendar culturally. It's just kind of a time to refresh, to rethink. And we find ourselves in a portion of the Word that actually lends itself towards maybe that atmosphere of resolution or renewal or refreshment. Um, We left off in James in in a place that is going to as often is the case in the book of James, it's going to hit us in a surprisingly uh, aggressive way, in a way that you don't often think about. And we're going to talk all about our words, the tongue. And what an interesting time as we consider a new year, a new you, a new opportunity to grow in the Lord, that we would start, we'd find ourselves in a passion of Scripture that starts with something so small and yet so powerful as the tongue. So we're going to read the first 12 verses and then... um, share a message about the power of our words. So read along with me in verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a word of iniquity. The tongue is so set among members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and every bird of reptile creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in the similitude of God." Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grape vine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The entire thrust of what we just read is all about the power and the use of our words both for good and evil. And if we gave a breakdown to the, uh, the passage of Scripture that we read, it really does neatly break down into three parts. There is a beginning of this that is a strict warning, specifically to the office of teacher, but a warning for all of us to be mindful of something that we often overlook that is a stumbling block in our lives, which is our words. And then it goes into the reason behind the warning. 
when the, the Bible warns us of something, it is not just to put us in a spiritual straitjacket and give us another dutiful thing to consider for our lives, but it is reasoning with us something that we need to be mindful of, that God wants to prescribe for our benefit. So we'll look at the reasoning for this warning. And then finally, it gives us a really good dose of reality, which is timely for what we are considering in the new year. It's like new year is, is when you kind of look out and you say, okay, what is real in my life? How do I need to make it improve? How can I take what I see and make an evaluation of it so that it would be to God's glory and to my benefit? And today we do that in all ways with this subtle invitation of James to consider our words. So very simply, I'll give you the name of the sermon just to, to keep an eye on the theme as we go through it. We're just going to call this Watch Your Words. Uh, watching your words in the same way some of you might be watching your weight at the moment or watching your finances, we actually find that at the thrust of everything that you do in your life, James says there is this small member that can direct your whole body, and it is, in fact, your words. So we watch our words in those categories, and at first it says we watch with a warning. Look at again what it says in verse 1. My brethren, let, many, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, his theme is all about words, but he's going to use an example, as he will later in the scripture, with pictures. And this is not necessarily a picture, but it is an analogy of how teachers who, without words, there is no teaching. That is, the, the game of a teacher is to use words to convey truth, to point the body or the classroom in the way that it should go. And what James says in a warning is, not many of you should want to do that. Not many of you should just be excited to jump in and, and open the word and just start proclaiming the truth of God. Now that starts off as a bummer, but he gives us the reason for that. It says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So the first way that we're reminded of the power of words this morning is the very act of me teaching and you listening is putting me in a dangerous calling. It's putting me in a position to be an example of what it looks like, as James will go on to say, when words are broken, when someone stumbles. And the reality is we learn the power of words oftentimes when the teacher who speaks those powerful words stumbles. Because what happens when a teacher stumbles? We, we don't have to do a, a long view of church history to get some examples of the way that God does apply the office of the church using people who will not apply words perfectly to their own life. Teachers stumble all the time, and it's always a shock to the body because teachers are held to a higher standard. That's the reality of the word of God. It's the reality of anything that you put your word to. Your words are now an accountability to your life. And it's true of the office of teacher for God's church. Uh, it is a good office. You almost read this as if to say, like, no one should teach. Well, people should teach according to God's call on their life and the reverence we have for the purpose of teaching. What we are doing this morning, clearly prescribed in Ephesians 4, is that teachers would open the word of God for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Meaning the only benefit. The, the power of what we're doing now is that God's word would go out. I sow it like a farmer sows seeds. You receive it so that you would grow and mature in what God's call for your life is to love him and love people. That's the intended purpose. But oftentimes, 
in the temptation of my own relationship to the pulpit or in the view and the examination of other teachers, the pulpit, like anything with influence, can be used for all sorts of its ulterior motives. The pulpit can be used to gain an audience, to raise money, to gain esteem. And one of the temptations that I struggle with every week, as does anyone who's called to publicly speak, is to somehow want your approval. I want this to go well. That's the hard thing about trying to serve God, but also realizing that I'm being judged by you. And I think we have to pause here and realize God's word is being elevated so that the teacher can be humbled right now. And that is the goal. And the strict punishment or the strict judgment is that God is viewing my words and I'll give an account to the way that I minister to you guys with the word. And, I'll, and part of that stricter judgment is, as Warren Worsby says, we're not all called to be judges. You can let God be the judge. But we're all called to be witnesses. And that's precisely what's happening now. I'm putting my word, the word of God, out, and now I'm being held accountable in a way where I've got so many witnesses onto my life. So be caution as a witness of my life that I will stumble. In fact, it didn't take me long as a preacher to realize that there is a stricter judgment because of what we're doing right now. I think it, it must have been the first week or two that I was the preaching pastor of this church. And my wife and I, who's sitting right over here, at a time in our life when we had less kids, so we had more freedom, which isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. There's no commentary there. But we just went straight from the church, and we went to the mall. And uh, I had one of those golden moments where I was, I was knocking the, uh, the gumball machine, and a free gumball came out. And I was like, that's incredible. So I said to my wife, baby, you got to film this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this on camera so I can kind of teach other people how to get free gumballs. And I was... You know, I've, I've probably still had my preacher clothes on, and I'm in the mall somewhere, like, kicking a machine while my wife is video recording. And I, and I just heard a voice subtly, but clearly, come up behind me and say, Pastor Tucker? <laughs> and I looked, and I was like, what am I doing with my life? I'm saving a quarter to lose a, to lose a witness. Stricter judgment. False, that's a, that's a small stumble. But James will go on to say, Everyone's going to stumble. Every teacher's going to stumble. Everyone who hears the word now held accountable to what God has put into your life because of the preaching of the word, we will all stumble. So James is saying, be cautious with your words. Be cautious with your desire to be an influencer, which is just a common word in our world now. Because the pulpit has evolved to all sorts of different channels and platforms that any one of us could stand on. And what we are saying this morning is be so careful that when God gives you his truth that you would share it according to his glory and that you would not cause others to stumble because of you. And there's too many examples to go through them all as time and time again the church gets a wake-up call for the stricter judgment that a teacher has on him. Uh, have any of you listened to The Rise and Fall? I know Keith has. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast. It, it's, it's one of the most recent examples of an, a, a church that elevated a teacher in a way that when he stumbled, it was damage for so many believers. And it's a lesson for all of us. We are all right now receiving God's word from a broken messenger so that you yourself would have your own version of being a messenger. 
and what we need to hear in this practice. This is not a game. You are not at church simply to take notes and give a review of the sermon. You are here to strictly judge the word of God, and you are here to become a messenger of the word of God. And words, as we will now see, the reason James is going to give such a long and heavy-handed approach to the caution of our words is because now we look at these examples starting in verse 3. We watch our words with a warning. We also watch our words knowing the reason for this moment, for the, for the reverence of the word, because words are so powerful. And I say that, and you agree with me, and we know they're powerful, that there's power in the word of God to move your heart, to shape your mind, to control your life. And yet James is going to plead with us, and he's going to creatively use examples to get our attention that we would not overlook this point. Words are powerful, but he doesn't just say it. He says, think about other things that you know have power, yet you would so easily overlook. Starting in verse 3, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. This one was written for a church in Idaho. Maybe the best of the three examples in the picture that we have for things that we can see around us. Horses are giant animals. Horses are capable of just raw power. In fact, even the cars that we now have replaced horses with are still measured by how many horses you could fit under the hood. And yet with something so small, we can tame an animal that is so much more powerful than us. And it says we can direct it anywhere we go. If you ever look at a bit, it's about this big. It goes right into their mouth. And it controls them in areas that are uncomfortable if they disobey. And yet James says, please look at the horse so that you would not overlook something so small with so much power. And then he gives another example. Less helpful for Idaho, but for someone who loves the idea of someday sailing away. It's great to hear a reminder of another picture. Verse 4. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So you look at a ship, and in James' day, all ships had sails. There was no engine. There was no horsepower. It was the fierce wind. So you have two things working together. A giant vessel and the power of wind, and yet with the rudder, which is so small, insignificant, and even overlooked at the first view of the ship. With a small rudder, the entire thing can take the force of the wind and the power of the vessel and go anywhere the pilot chooses. And so James says, now, consider your life. Are you overlooking something that you would consider so small? Because now this third picture that he will give us is going to equate it all with our tongue. Verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. We have one more picture. Appropriate for Idaho, but better for the late summer months. If you're visiting Boise, come back for this analogy to be seen all over the valley. When a little fire expands through the foothills and wind blows it to cover our entire city with that, that smog of fire. And how does it start? starts with a spark of lightning. It starts, unfortunately, with a, a, a firework that someone lights so small, and it expands and takes down thousands of acres. And James is saying, I, it, it, you have to see it in these pictures that are undeniable because we deny it with our tongue. 
He says, so it is with your tongue, your words, the way that you now respond to the word of God, and you become a messenger in your own right, which we all are. Every one of us, given this divine gift that is uniquely human, the gift of communication, and every one of us will be forced with a moment this week with how we will use the power of this small rudder, the bit in our mouth that is our tongue, to direct our lives, to direct our relationships. And I got another lesson just this week in the power of my own tongue. One of the amazing things about being a dad in the stage that I am is that I get to see language exploding in front of me. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old son right now, and his vocabulary is pretty limited, but I'm watching it take shape. And he is learning the power of his own language, and he is teaching me the power of my language. So three nights ago, as we were trying to put him to bed, he kept sitting up, and I came in, and for me, small, tiny, I just looked at him, I said, down, boy, kind of like you would to a dog. (laughs) Because his language skills are that of a golden retriever. (laughs) Two words. Two small words and a tone. For me, totally insignificant. For him, he looked at me, and I realized that I had lit a fire. He looked at me, and his eyes started to water, and his lips started to curl. And what I just said to him was as big as an atomic bomb. He just lost it for those two words. Down, boy. And he looked at me and said, don't say down boy. <laughs> I was like, I repent. That's a, that's a fire that I didn't see coming. And all of these things have a commonality. From the bridle to the ship to the fire, it is a small thing that directs everything else. Where the pilot wants it to go. Where the horseback rider wants it to go. And a fire contained is a beautiful thing. And so it is, James says, your language will shape everything about your life. And we've got so many things about our lives that we put at the altar of a new year and make it a resolution. And what we start with this morning by the power of God's word is we say, check your mouth if you want to see progress on anything else. And maybe you've resolved to have better relationships this year. And we tend to think of that in terms of action or things that we could do differently. You want to have a better marriage? Start with the way you speak to one another. You want to see your household shaped and guided by the power of the gospel, the good news of God's love for us? Speak to your kids with the power of the gospel. You want to see your neighborhood change? You want to see your community change? You want to see the world directed towards God? Consider the power of the way that we communicate with one another. And this is why it's appropriate that this whole sermon series is called The Gospel on the Ground. Because the idea is you take the truth of the gospel, that God loves us, that he has taken care of everything that separated us from his love, namely our sin, and he empowers us to love him in return and to love others. That's the gospel. And James says, well, then live it out. Here's what the gospel in trial looks like. Here's what the gospel in lack of wisdom looks like. Here's what the gospel in action looks like. And now James says, here's what the gospel through your words looks like. The gospel is, in fact, good news. In a world that is full of anything but good news, the gospel says there is an end to the story that is glorious, and we are the messengers of it. And yet, before you can fully unpack the gospel, you also have to contrast the bad news. That's why the gospel's news because it's different than the storyline of the world. 
The storyline of the world ends with a death of the universe, a death of the body, a, a war and rumor of war. And the gospel says there's a different ending. The gospel also comes into us right now and reminds us that we need the gospel to tame our lips. Look what it says in verse thing, or verse 6, the bad news. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Now we get another picture from James. This takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis Consider what James says now of the challenge of the tongue, the bad news of the tongue. For every kind of beast and every bird or reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been by mankind. The horse with the bridle. Every animal that you see, you could fit somewhere inside the circus from the lion to the bear to the horse to the camel. And yet James says, God has given us dominion over the animals of the earth, but there is something that we cannot tame, and it's our own mouth. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Our words are powerful, and our words are dangerous. And one of the ways the gospel comes to shape us and to inform us is to say that left to our own devices, our words will be used. Like everything else that battles within us, our, used will, our words will be used for evil. It says it sets on fire the course of nature within us. In other words, every single one of us has a default setting towards the fallen nature of sin and division and tension, and fighting, and arguing, and backbiting that escalates to violence, and it all starts with the way that we talk to one another. Haven't we seen that to be so? Haven't we just gotten a whole lesson over the last couple of years of what happens when human communication elevates? Because what does not elevate along with that rising tide is a rising tide of encouragement and hope and promises that are kept, and words that are fulfilled, what we find is that human nature has an evil capacity to use words against one another. Here's a simple way that you might have experienced. There's an Urban Dictionary definition for you for a term called Twitter rage. This is maybe best applied to whatever your preferred platform is, but uh, one of the best examples of human nature is found in this little website called Twitter. You can see all of the gunk all on full display. And look what Twitter rage is. It says at least five consecutive angry tweets about something usually results in a drop of followers and more people raging. So you lose the people that you're trying to get a hold of, more people get angry, and it's five uncontrollable tweets that you just have to get out. If anyone's been on Twitter, you know what this is. If you haven't been Twitter on Twitter, you also know what this is because Twitter didn't invent human nature. It just gave it a platform, a dangerous platform with a blue check mark to tell you who has more approved nature than the next person. But it's all in all of us. This is why when you're driving and someone pulls in front of you, even after you've just left church, isn't it funny? You could, you could be praising the Lord. You could be edified by the word of God in you. And yet it takes one delay, 30-second delay in the red light going green to where you can't help but rage against your neighbor. I got a, a reminder of this because I just went to the Calvary Chapel Missions Conference. 
and it was, that's where I was last weekend. Um, man, human nature just loves to rail against humans, doesn't it? I found myself looking for different places to eat, buy coffee. I didn't know my way around. And I, as I'm reading reviews, there's just something that is so human about the negative review. Have you ever noticed that? Everything I looked up, it was like top comment. This place is horrible. I'll never go back. The coffee's cold and the people are evil. And I'm like, hmm. I want to search by one-star reviews. That's juicy. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm like human nature. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the negative talk. And don't we all at times, when someone says, I really shouldn't be telling you this, but, and you're like, okay, <laughs> tell me more about this negative talk. So what James is saying is this is the beginning of all the other problems that we have. All of the other things flow from this, this way that we're so divided in, in the way that we receive the word, but it doesn't come out of us in the gospel good news. In fact, he'll go on to say this. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings. Or verse 9. With it we bless God. With our tongue we bless God and the Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. In other words, these are people made in God's image. Whoever cut you off, Whoever owns that coffee shop, whatever bad service that you got, whatever differing political view came up on your newsfeed, every person is made in the image of God. And James says, you worship God and then you curse his image. With the same words, you worship the Lord. You say, I love you, God, but I don't love your people. And it starts with the way that we speak. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and curse. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. And so as we begin to resolve the challenge set before us that all other challenges flow from, that our words, our accountability, dangerous and powerful, consider this resolution. So Jonathan Edwards famously wrote a list of long resolutions that he would go through as he read the word. And I find it timely for the calendar that we find ourselves in because he had a very poignant resolution through the way that he uses his words. Consider this and ask yourself what the world would look like if we all resolved to align our hearts with the message of God's word in the way that we actually use our words. Here's what he said of his own resolution. I resolve never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own failures and failings and agreeable to the golden rule. Often when I have said anything against anyone to bring it to and try it strictly by this resolution. My words are so tamed that I won't violate anything of the honor of God and the teachings of Christ and the following of Jesus in my life when I speak about anyone else. That is a resolution that would change your world. And it brings us to the final reality as we looked at a warning, the reason to be warned, and the reality we find ourselves in with the dichotomy of the word of God in our hearts given to us and the word that we have to battle that is so hard to tame. Here's what it says in James chapter 3, verse 11. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? 
Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Here's the reality. We are what we speak. The way that we speak to one another is shaped by who we are in our lives, by what God has implanted into your heart that is so valid that it comes out of your heart in your words. Your words make visible your heart. And that's why James is bringing us all the way to this place to say, what do your words say about your nature? As you have been bought with a price, made alive in Christ, given newness of life, forgiveness of sins, hope for eternity, are those words aligned with that reality? Or are your words aligned with the old reality, hopeless and dead in your sins? Here's what Jesus says of the division between the treasures of our heart and the visible words. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. Your words reveal your treasure. As we come here this morning, we proclaim God as our treasure. That's why we worship him. We study the word. You take notes. You listen in submission as a treasure of the word of God. And as that grabs root into your life, your words reveal that treasure. And yet so often, what do our words speak about what we treasure? We treasure our political party. We treasure our tribe. We treasure being right more than being gracious. We treasure our own identity, our own esteem, and our words shape us from that treasure. And so James comes and says, how can you pour out salt water and fresh water? If you have the power of God's word as a reality of life. You are a fresh water fountain. That's what we're called to. That's the measure by which your words should be judged. And I love that picture because in the salt water fountain, in the fresh water fountain, we see a contrast from the world and from Jesus. So I was thinking about the contrast in my own life. I thought of this moment where Jesus declares through his words the power that he wants his truth in our lives to represent. He was actually meeting the woman at a well. What comes out of that well? And he says to her, can I have a drink? And she's like, why are you even talking to me? I'm a woman and I'm Samaritan, which I love that passage even more now as we've got so many people who would ask you, why are you talking to me? We don't align. We have different views. We have different dividing lines. And yet Jesus breaks forth by the power of his word to say something that all of us need to hear, to be reminded in, and to be refreshed in. Because he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And this is the drink that God is offering us through his word. He says in John chapter 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. That is the overflow that we are supposed to represent to the world. The fresh life of God dwelling in our hearts that has satisfied our soul. Are we a satisfied bunch? Are we people who bring fresh water to the conversations of the world? 
Again, I see the contrast between the salt water and the fresh. There's something about drinking salt water that is just wrong, you know. But part of it is that it doesn't satisfy you. It, it's water. It's wet on your lips. But there is non-satisfaction. There is a need to continually go back, to continually try to find the satisfaction and getting worse and worse as you go. And is that not the communication of our world? I got news for every single one of you. Of You've paused your phone. You've sat under the word in obedience to pay attention. And your news feed waits for you. It never dies. There's new news in your pocket right now. And it's going to tell you about your, the, the, the desires of your politics, the desires of your bank account, the, the, the upcoming events of the world. And you will never, ever get to the bottom of the news feed. It's always there. And it will never ever satisfy your soul. And yet, there is an invitation again this morning to find what you were made for. Jesus says, I'm a fountain. You drink of me and you have satisfaction. You drink of me and you can overflow peace and joy and hope and redemption and forgiveness and long-suffering through your words because you have them imprinted into your heart. And that's what we are called to as we look at this invitation from James to be people who understand the power of the word of God in our lives and through our lips. So what fountain are you? What's coming out of your mouth as God gives you the people in your life to speak to? Fresh, calming, satisfying words from God's people to a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to. And this is the gospel. And this is where we close. The gospel is hidden in here, already read in verse 2. For we all stumble. None of us will be perfect freshwater fountains wherever we go. It will only take a matter of time before the people you love the most are getting sprayed with salt water in their eyes. All of us will stumble. If anyone doesn't stumble in word, he is perfect and able to direct the whole body. And now the word elevates the one that all of us look to for all of these things. The one who never stumbled in word. He knew when to give a gentle answer. He knew when to rebuke the wind and the waves. He knew how to call deadness to life. He knew how to offer forgiveness. He knew how to encourage, offer hope. And the word of Christ is word of life. The one who never stumbles is the good news of the gospel. His spirit available for all of us. And I'll leave you with one quote. Because this is such a joyful invitation. The ability to say the right thing at the right time to the right person in the power of the Holy Spirit is a most magnificent grace in the life of the believer, but it is also one of the most difficult graces to experience. We tend to think so much about our journey of maturity with Christ into what we do. How many people are we serving? How many volunteer opportunities, church attendance, scripture memorization? And yet one of the greatest graces is when you are able to offer a pure word of God's encouragement to another believer. Perfect timing, the perfect way, the perfect person. And I will use myself as an example. As burdensome it is 
to fall under the stricter judgment of the pulpit, which it is. And every week, I think, maybe this will be my last sermon. It is also more magnificently joyful to experience the word of God administering and, and encouraging someone's life. It's the only way I think pastors have enough encouragement to keep going is when the word of God goes out and someone's life is changed. Someone's heart is healed because of the word. Someone bears fruit to God's glory because of the word. And this is an invitation for all of us. This is not reserved to the pulpit. This is something that we are all being invited into to be that fresh spring of life to a lost and dying world.